0: What keeps you awake at night, Uh, whether it's nightmares, stress, or a buzzing cell phone, or a clinical disorder like insomnia, sleep apnea, or even depression, there's a whole lot that can go wrong after your head hits the pillow. The CDC estimates that 50 to 70 million U.S. adults have a sleep or wakefulness disorder, and they're calling it a public health problem. Here to describe why, as well as to explain some of the causes of insufficient sleep, is Dr. Rafael Palayo, Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Stanford Center for Sleep Sciences and Medicine. Dr. Palayo, thanks for joining us on today's Please Explain.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And to our listeners, if you uh, or someone you know is having trouble sleeping, if you have a general question about sleep disorders, you can give us a call. 212-433-9692. Two one two four three three nine six nine two. You can write to us on our show page at org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. So, Dr. Pallai, before we get to sleep disturbances, can you first explain what happens to our brains and bodies when we fall asleep?
1: Well, that is the big question, isn't it? Why Bob is sleeping in the first place? One of the earliest sleep researchers said that if sleep has no function, is the biggest mistake evolution ever made. So if you think about what's happening with sleep, there's a paradox of sleeping, because sleeping animals can be attacked at any time. So every sleep's functions, or functions with an S, are so important, you put your life at risk of being attacked to obtain whatever benefits we have of sleep. So we have to think of sleep as a restorative physiological process. It's the brain that has to sleep. It's not the kidneys or the lungs that have to sleep. It's the brain. So it's a restorative cyclical uh, process that restores our brains, and how exactly it does, and why it, it, it happens is not clear. Current thinking is if you have to think of the brain as an electrical organ, the brain is consuming a lot of energy, about a fifth of all our calories are consumed simply by the brain, and that there may be waste products that accumulate while the brain is awake that have to be flushed out, and there's something, thoughts about this. But it's more complicated than that, it has to be, because sleep is so ubiquitous among all living things that sleep probably has different functions, for example, in a human that it may have in a uh, paramecium or sleep in, um, in a bird. They may have different functions for it. But what we do know is that sleep makes you feel good, it's restorative. We function better with sleep. And sleep is so important to our existence that you put your life at risk of being attacked in order to obtain that sleep. So that's you have to start thinking about it, that sleep is something good for the brain. It's not an inconvenience. A lot of your listeners may view sleep as an inconvenience. Well, it's well. a restorative process.
0: I like going to sleep, but um, uh, although I've been told that I should get eight hours of sleep a night, my brain doesn't allow that. Uh, if I'm lucky, I get six and a half, seven hours of, of sleep. So does that eight hours apply to everybody?
1: Certainly it does not. Um, you, we have to stop thinking about sleep in terms of the hours of sleep. That's not as important. I think of any sleep problem in four dimensions. I always think about sleep as the amount of sleep. That's important. And there's variability. It could be between six and a half to 9 hours. There's a range. And it depends on your age also. So the amount of sleep is important. But just as important or more important is the quality of your sleep. Do you wake up feeling refreshed? I've had patients who tell me that they wake up feeling tired, that sleeping makes them tired, because the more they sleep, the worse they feel. So the amount, the quality, the timing of your sleep, or your shift worker, are you, work? you sleeping in spurts, uh, do, you, do you sleep on weekends? And finally, ultimately, your state of mind. Are you looking forward to sleeping? Are you looking forward to tomorrow? So the amount of sleep, the quality, the timing, and the state of mind are the four factors you have to think about when you try to evaluate somebody's sleep, not just the amount of hours that they're getting.
0: Thomas Edison said, I'm quoting, Personally, I enjoy working about 18 hours a day. Besides the short cat naps I take each day, I average about four to five hours of sleep per night. And he seemed to do fairly well.
1: Well, we're not all Edison, are we? But the, but if you think about this, people also underestimate how much sleep they get. Um, this is something that a lot of your listeners will, will experience. If you ever sit in a monotonous meeting, a boring conference, they call it death by PowerPoint. If you watch around the room, somebody's head is kind of nodding a little bit, eyes are rolling. Eventually, the head drops. You'll see them head drop. They may even start to snore right in front of you. If you nudge that person, if you tap I'm awake, the first thing they say is, "I'm awake. I'm mm-hmm. resting my eyes." So we know people underreport how much sleep they're really getting, and people brag about how little sleep they're getting. People fall asleep driving their cars because they're able to, be, because they're not realizing how drowsy they are. So you really can't trust somebody to tell you exactly how many hours of sleep they're really getting unless you have some objective measure of it. Also, some people are, are brilliant uh, people with bipolar, uh, manic depressive people. They may tend to get less sleep at times when they're high, high in productivity. And I think with Edison is a good example. But did they get the more sleep when they're in a depressed state? A
0: bulb. I'm sorry. Did they get more sleep, those uh, bipolar people, when they're in a depressed state?
1: Yeah, they will. They, they may spend more time. They may linger in bed. They may not want to get out of bed. People with depression, um, you have to distinguish sleeping from staying in bed because waking up is one thing and getting out of bed is something different. So they may spend hours in bed and sleeping on and off, and they sleep very inefficiently. They're drifting into a very light sleep, so they spend much more time in bed when they're depressed. At the same time, they may wake up early in the morning, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and not be able to get back to sleep, but they still linger in bed.
0: Allison from Manhattan, you've called in about this.
2: Oh, my goodness. Yes, thank you. And I uh, truly love your show. I'm a big fan. Um, so I did want uh, to We don't put you to
0: sleep, Allison?
2: No, no, no. I feel like I get such an education with you guys, and I already have a master's degree, but really, I love your shows. You and Brian, fabulous. Thank you. So um, at first, I told your screener that I wanted to talk about my personal experience, and I'll do it very quickly. I also had a second um, comment about babies. Um, so I am a 53 year old woman always slept well ever since, you know, teeny, you know, um, always enjoyed going in my bed. I said when I went to sleep, I would say, I love my bed, I love my bed, and I really did love my bed, and I still do. I love sleeping late, I luxuriate it, you know, in it, but a few years ago, I started to have some serious, you know, personal issues, divorce, <clears throat> trying not to cry, um, teenage girls, um getting um, kind of a hostile work environment, and I just, like, became depressed. And so I think I missed some of your talking about it, but it was so hard for me, um, you know, not to, to like, sleep well. Uh, you so found yourself thinking
0: about all of your problems?
2: Um, i think I think what I found was I was not only thinking about my problems but as the um, and i 'm so sorry I missed the uh, the name of the doctor or the guest speaker um, i wasn 't looking forward to tomorrow, but not in a way that I wanted to do harm to myself. it was just because I was having all these issues.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, let's speak to Dr. Pelayo. Uh My guest is Dr. Rafael Palio, clinical professor of psychology and behavioral sciences at the Stanford Center for Sleep Sciences and Medicine. Uh, this is WMIC, WMIC.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. Does depression uh, prevent people from sleeping well, Dr. Palio?
1: It goes in both directions. People with depression certainly don't sleep well. But most people with insomnia are not depressed. And that's important to understand this. Yes, many people with depression don't sleep well, but most people with insomnia are not depressed. But if you go to your doctor's office, and they're not educated on sleep, and you say you're a middle-aged lady, and you're not, and you're not sleeping well, they don't prescribe for you antidepressants, they give you Prozac instead of investigating what's really happening in your, in your life.
0: So Would you say middle age is that there is a postmenopausal factor here?
1: Yeah. Uh, statistically, women get more insomnia than men. Men snore more than women, so go figure. But... Uh, Women have more insomnia than men. When you look at children, my background, by the way, is as uh, a pediatrician in child neurology, and I work a lot with families. Um, so when you have little kids, five and six-year-olds, they have the same degree, boys and girls, of sleep, sleep problems. But when you hit puberty, girls have more insomnia than boys, and then you also have another surge of insomnia of first-time mothers. And with menopause, there's another surge of insomnia. And insomnia is such a common symptom of, of, of menopause, or poor sleep, rather that people don't even mention it as a symptom. It's presumed that as you go through menopause you won't sleep well. So there may be multiple factors in this particular listener's poor sleep. Certainly stress is going to play a role in this and and something worth to address. A simplistic way of thinking about this is that your life is reflected in your sleep, and your sleep is a reflection of your life. So even though I'm a sleep doctor, what I really take care of is people who attribute how they, how they feel when they're awake to their sleep. So we've got to take care of both things at the same time, not only the sleep, but what's happening when they're awake also.
0: A recent article in the New York Times stated that one in 10 adults has diagnosable insomnia. What's the textbook definition of diagnosable insomnia? Uh, and is there such a thing as undiagnosable insomnia?
1: So insomnia is both a symptom and a syndrome. And that is you have to make that distinction. Insomnia is simply the symptom. It's like pain. There are pain symptoms and there are pain syndrome.
0: Is there a chemical so, factor?
1: There has to be a chemical factor at some level um, because it all translates into that at a basic level, right? So there are medical reasons you may have insomnia. For example, you have a bad you have your thyroid disease can have insomnia. Um, but for the most part, insomnia is trouble falling asleep or staying asleep to the point that it bothers you the next day. So there has to be trouble either falling asleep or staying asleep with next day impairment. If you stay awake and it doesn't bother you, you don't have insomnia. So that's the symptom of insomnia, trouble falling asleep or staying asleep to the point that it bothers you the next day. The syndrome is usually occurs when you've had insomnia, uh, usually two or three nights per week for more than three months. Once that's happening, what begins to occur is that you start to think about your sleep when you're awake, and the thought of sleeping wakes you up, and that's the paradox. The thought of sleeping wakes you up. If a patient ever tells you, anybody you meet on the street tells you that they're drowsy, they're they're sleepy when they're in the living room, but when they get to their bedroom, as soon as their head hits the pillow, they're wide awake, or they tell you that when they wake up at night, they're scared or they're worried that they cannot go back to sleep then the chronic chronic insomnia sets in. The thought of sleeping wakes them up, and that's what we have to uh, address with all our patients with insomnia.
0: Is the sleep less restful if we wake up several times during the night?
1: So here's the thing. Everybody wakes up at night several times. We all do. You did last night. I did last night. Everybody here has. Nobody ever sleeps seven or eight hours in a row. If we really slept seven or eight hours in a row, the lions and tigers would have picked us off, you know, centuries ago when we lived in caves and little villages.
0: And we would have wet our beds in many cases.
1: Exactly. So waking up is normal. What's abnormal is having trouble going back to sleep. Humans always wake up about every 90 minutes. It coincides with our REM, non REM, our dreaming and non dreaming cycle. At the end of every dream, we tend to have a, a major body movement and we're awake for maybe 15 to 20, 30 seconds. Not enough to remember. So waking up is normal. What's abnormal is having trouble going back to sleep. And that's the issue. But once you have chronic insomnia and you start thinking that waking up is a problem, not something that's a normal physiological process, which is waking up, becomes a problem to be fixed in your mind. And now, you w- now when you wake up at night, you've got to figure out how to get back to sleep. And that's the issue. Don't focus on the waking up. It's going back to sleep is a real issue.
0: You've written that sleep disorder research lies at the intersection of neuroscience and psychiatry. That's right. What about pulmonology? Aren't many sleep problems like sleep apnea related to breathing? Uh, and so should I include snoring so in the that?
1: medicine began originally, it uh, was set up by a neurologist and a psychiatrist together working at Stanford University, actually, uh, back in the early 1970s. But... Uh, One of the disorders that became most prominent that insurance companies started reimbursing for was obstructive sleep apnea, which we'll spoke, I'm sure we'll get to more in a moment.
0: Well, because we have a caller, Kevin from Madison, New Jersey, who wants to talk about that. But finish what you're saying, and then, Kevin, you can jump in.
1: Sure. So, obstructive sleep apnea is a condition where the brain cannot sleep and breathe at the same time. Think about that. You're stuck in the fact that you can, your brain has to decide, is it more important to sleep or to breathe? And the brain says, I'd rather sleep than breathe for a window of time. So when this disorder became better known, the treatment for it was a machine called CPAP, C-P-A-P. And once a treatable... Um, Uh, Device became available, pulmonary doctors flooded into the field of sleep medicine in the 80s and 90s. So most sleep doctors in the United States are pulmonologists. But most of the pulmonologists that do sleep medicine don't focus too much on insomnia. That's something that's kind of usually something that they shy away from and they focus more on sleep apnea. Although, of course, there are many excellent sleep doctors trained in pulmonary medicine who also take care of insomnia. So, the caller has a question? I do. Thank you very much, doctor. Good afternoon, Leonard. Good afternoon, doctor. I've been diagnosed, well, I was diagnosed in October of 2007, and I've used a CPAP machine since that period, but I haven't been back for another sleep study. Uh, Insurance was kind of a stickler as far as covering it. Is that inadvisable? Should I pursue getting another sleep study, either one inpatient where I sleep overnight in the hospital, or should I get one where they have the uh, home device? So the answer, first of all, it's good that you're being treated for sleep apnea. CPAP is a wonderful device. Currently, right now, I mean, you may have had many listeners who've tried CPAP in the past uh, when it was noisy and bulky. The machines are much, much better now in 2016. And I've been telling people we're currently in the golden era of CPAP. It's never, ever been better than it is right now. So if anybody who's tried it before, should try it again because it's a lot better than it's ever been. You do, you do not. The answer is no. You do not necessarily need a repeat sleep test. The test is simply designed to answer a question. So if you've been diagnosed with sleep apnea uh, 10 years ago or 9 years ago and you still snore without the machine and you still have the condition, then there's no need to repeat the test. The question is, we would repeat the test if there's something else has occurred, like the machine is no longer working as well and we need to uh, recheck your settings and your pressure settings on the device. They would call that a titration study. Or you have another condition, like your legs are kicking, or you develop something else going on. But you don't necessarily need a repeat sleep test uh, to confirm you have uh, sleep apnea. For example, if you had diabetes, you get checked once, you don't have to confirm the diabetes every 10 years. That would not be necessary. What you do need is not a test, but you do need is a sleep doctor to see you. A lot of times the patients don't stop seeing the sleep doctor and they get just their um, supplies for their machine from the primary care physician. You should see a sleep doctor once a year or once every two years at the most. That's more important than an actual tests.
0: And we have to go to a little break. Thank you for your call, Kevin. We'll uh, talk about snoring and uh, all sorts of other things and uh, the use of cognitive behavioral therapy, perhaps, um, taking drugs. Uh, As we continue this conversation about sleep and insomnia and related matters, uh, our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WMIC.org slash Lopate on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. My guest is Dr. Rafael Palayo, clinical professor, and also uh, oh, he's a clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Stanford Center for Sleep Sciences and Medicine. Stay with us for more. and we are back with Dr. Rafael Palayo, clinical professor, psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Stanford Center for Sleep Sciences and Medicine. We're talking about insomnia and other sleep-related issues on today's Please Explain. We invite your calls at two one two four three three nine six nine two. Right now, all of our lines are filled, so you probably will get a busy signal, but be patient. You can also write to us on our show page at wnycorg slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Before we get to some of these calls, I just want to address the, the matter of snoring. What causes snoring and should be concerned if if we snore loudly because some people uh, are light snorers, some are very loud snorers, and I, and I wonder what determines that.
1: So all snoring, all snoring is abnormal. It doesn't matter if it's loud or soft. Snoring always means that there's some form of turbulence and obstruction in your throat. We use our throats for conflicting functions, your you throat for eating, breathing, and talking. And if you think about The throat has to be a rigid pipe to sustain the negative force when you want to inhale and breathe. But you need a a collapsible uh, tube in order to eat. And think about how exclusively sensitive the, the throat has to be in order for us to laugh and sing and talk. So what happens is we fall asleep, the throat will narrow the muscles in our throat to relax a little bit, but the lungs are the same size. So you have to create more negative force to go through this space. And when the air goes through this narrowing, it's like a musical instrument or a bad one, you get turbulence, and that's what snoring is, is turbulent airflow. The uvula will tend to rattle, the little thing in the back of our throat that's the tail end of your soft palate. And some people have short uvula, some people have long uvulas. So some people have a lot of obstruction but make very little noise because the evil is short. And some people have very little obstruction but snore a lot because they have these long evil Just like you can't tell how big a fire is by how loud the fire alarm is. So it's important to think about all snoring. In children, for example, little, uh, pre- snoring in a preschool child uh, predicts by a factor of four quadruples the chance of being labeled ADD when they're in elementary school. Because hmm. kids who are snoring and not sleeping well have a hard time paying attention and get stuck with stimulants. Is
0: it possible so, to cure that snoring?
1: Yes. There's lots of different ways. It's just have to make the, the space in the throat wider. In children they may remove their tonsils. In adults, uh, if you gain weight, one of the reasons that men snore more is because when we put on weight our neck our weight preference goes to our necks. Men have thicker necks in general than women. After menopause, women may tend to put on weight on their upper half of the body also. So there are a lot of surgical treatments available for this. The CPAP machine I was described earlier will open up the space. Your dentist can make an appliance for you that will move the tongue forward and by moving the tongue forward, the tongue 's the biggest thing in our throats. But moving the tongue forward, you open up that space and can also relieve that obstruction. What about um, and also if you have allergies, you want to address allergies, sometimes simple no surgeries. Uh, breathe right strips, those, those plastic mm-hmm. adhesive strips on the nose, can also relieve snoring. So there are lots of ways of taking care of it, but it should not be ignored. Snoring is, is always abnormal.
0: Is snoring an evolutionary disadvantage? You don't want predators to hear you, uh, that, hear that you're sleeping.
1: So um, that's a very smart question. Um, animals in the wild don't snore. Right? When you, if you visit the Bronx Zoo, the first time you go there, it's very exciting. You think you're going to see all these animals acting out, but instead they're all sleeping. But they don't snore. But dogs the only snore. we know of is in humans and domesticated animals. Old, you know, our pet dogs may snore. Farm animals will snore. But in the wild, things do not tip off their presence to the predators when the guard is down.
0: When is it uh, time to consider administering medication? Do drugs ever help?
1: for are no no i'm problem? just talking
0: back to, to going to sleep for example beth writes on our show page why do so many doctors not like to prescribe sleep aids like ambien i've had sleep problems for the past 15 years and find that a little bit of ambien just about two and a half milligrams really helps me get the rest i need when my mind will not settle enough to fall off to sleep I am a healthy 64-year-old, and it always perplexes me that doctors are resistant to give me a drug that has worked for me for many years. And then uh, others have asked about over-the-counter medications, like uh, like melatonin, for example. Um, let's take a call from Kathleen from Jersey City. Uh, in your case, you uh, w- well, anyway, uh, can you talk to a bit about uh, the the different drugs?
1: Of course. So you have to think of these medications for sleep as simply tools, right? I mean, the, the, the issue is not uh, what you're going to take. It's why do you need to take something in the first place, what's causing the insomnia. Sleeping pills, hypnotics are among the oldest class of medications in the history of, of humanity. The oldest things ever created as far as medications were we think were sleeping pills or sleeping potions and aphrodisiacs of some kind. So they've always been around. The problem many doctors have with prescribing medication is not so much starting it, like uh, as the person uh, wrote in the question, it's, not starting it is when do you stop it. The fear most primary care doctors have if a, is if they start writing the prescription for the sleeping pill, a controlled substance like, like Ambien or the generic solbitum, if I start writing that prescription, when am I, I going to stop it? I'm going to prescribe this thing forever. That's the issue for them. It's not that they don't want to start it. It's they don't know when to stop it. I have many patients who have been taking these medications for years and decades successfully, so some people do well with them. But others don't, and the real issue is not the pill. It's what's Uh, Is why they take the pill. People will talk about, uh, like earlier in your segment, you you talked about Michael Jackson, and people talk about Heath Ledger, and they talk about these people that they died from taking these medications. But what really caused them to have the problem was not the pill, but the insomnia. The insomnia drove them to do this. So the real issue is not what pill I'm going to take. It's why they have insomnia in the first place. So now the current uh, way of dealing with insomnia is this cognitive behavioral therapy concept, which actually a lot of pioneering work was done in New York City. So cognitive behavioral therapy is a way of getting you to sleep without medication. And in modern clinical practice of sleep medicine, we'll start somebody with, on medication as a short-term bridge sometimes. But our long-term goal is to get them to sleep without medication. And
0: how does that, that cognitive work? cognitive behavioral therapy. How does that work, cognitive therapy?
1: Sure, so cognitive behavioral therapy is used in in psychology for a lot of different conditions, but there's a a variant of it called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is very, very successful. What's what's behind it is that we think that people behave a certain way based on their prior experiences, which lead lead them to think a certain way. So the way you're thinking leads you to behave a certain way and people with with insomnia are trapped in misconceptions. They have lots of misconceptions. We can go over those if you like. But people with insomnia have misconceptions about their sleep. For example, if I can't sleep, I should rest, which doesn't make any sense. Or I wake up depending on what time I fell asleep. And these logic uh, fallacies is what traps them into their insomnia. And what kind of behavioral therapy does is give you new information about sleeping to so help you think differently, which will change your behavior. And as your behavior changes, you have a positive experience, which will further change your thinking and will snowball gradually. So we can usually get somebody with chronic insomnia, insomnia for decades, 20, 25 years of insomnia, to start sleeping better without medication in about two months. And that's very successful.
0: Terry from Baldwin has written in, I have regular bouts of middle of the night wakefulness and I often get up and make chamomile tea. Drinking something warm seems to make me sleepy.
1: Yeah, that means, so there's a lot of over-the-counter things that'll work. Uh, The thing with insomnia is everything, when you deal with chronic insomniacs, again, people have had this condition for years and years and years. They always find something that works for a while. So the chamomile will work Valerian root will work, melatonin will work, antihistamines Benadryl will work, but only work for a while. Mm-hmm. Because what's really happening is now your listener when she wakes up at night, she takes a chamomile. she's getting a reward for for waking up. And now this will work for a while, but down the road it may stop working and now she's got to add something else. And when you deal with uh, chronic insomniacs, they have a litany of conditions that they have to have, a certain pillow, a sound machine, light a certain way, this and that. And despite all the things they're trying to control, they still don't sleep well. And one of the things that's interesting is when when you talk with chronic insomniacs, and some of your listeners may verify this, their bed partners, the people they sleep next to, sleep very well because insomniacs don't sleep next to other insomniacs. They can't put up with each other in the bedroom. So usually you have really good sleepers sleeping next to insomniacs.
0: Kathleen from New Jersey City, i put you back on the line. You have a question about melatonin?
2: Uh, yes, uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, uh, how about the population? My father-in-law has dementia, and he's progressed to the point where he's getting up at night. Um, you know, so is there something that can be prescribed? I know there that he is being prescribed something, but... Also, I heard that coconut too. If you have coconut on like full moon nights, which (laughs) can keep you up, Um, I'm just I'm just throwing things out here. What what do you say with uh, dementia? Someone with
1: doctor dementia is a horrible uh, situation, very challenging problem. Uh, One of the reasons people get institutionalized because people, when they early dementia, they stay with their relatives. But one of the reasons they actually get put into an institution, a nursing home, or skilled nursing facility, is typically because they're up at night and nobody can take care of them and that's not safe. So anything we can do to improve their sleep is important. Um, like, like any other um, person, and the elderly, they have sleep issues. Um, so they may have sleep apnea, for example. They may have insomnia. There's a condition called periodic limb movements that occurs in the elderly. So all these things have to be fixed to improve their sleep. One of the things that happens a lot of times as people get older is they start spending a lot of time in their bedroom. And the more time you spend in your bedroom awake, the more used you are to being awake in your bedroom, and that'll also fragment your sleep. So sometimes getting people out of the bedroom and only letting them go to their rooms when they're going to sleep only, so they associate the bedroom with sleeping is important. The other part of this is how much light they're getting. Um, there's been studies on nursing homes where a lot of times in, in um, facilities at the home, the people are have the lights on at night, and that throws off your sleep cycle, and then they wake up to darkness, which also throws off your cycle. So sometimes giving bright light in the morning, dim lights in the evening can help. Melatonin is another substance that is uh, helpful to get people into a regular sleep schedule. we have to make sure that the elderly person with dementia doesn't also have depression, which also interferes with their sleep. So there's a lot of variables with this, um, but it's a key thing. That's something actually we would like is more research dollars put into the treatment of sleep disorders and, and dementias because it, it's a growing problem. And if you treat the dementia, the sleep problems of demented people, people with dementia, excuse me, um, we will save money in the long run because they won't have to be institutionalized uh, for as long.
0: A lot of people have written in about uh, What you uh, have before you go to sleep, whether you uh, have had some alcohol or Marion Westchester writes, when I go to bed on a full stomach, I always have stress dreams or nightmares. Is it better to leave a window of time between dinner and bedtime?
1: Sure. So here's the thing with dreams. People are fascinated by dreams uh, and dreams are uh, obviously um, interesting uh, topic. One of the first rules or uh, concepts behind dreaming is even though we dream throughout the night, the average person has about two hours of dreams every night. You only remember dreams if you wake up during a dream. So when somebody talks to me about their dreams or their nightmares, the first question is not the content, but why do you remember them in the first place? Because dreams are usually meant to be forgotten. They don't really linger in our heads, and we're usually not aware of all our dreams.
0: Unless they're a nightmare,
1: and the, the nightmare wakes us. Right, right. So the question is the content of the dream. And also, why do you remember them in the first place? So the classic thing you'll hear somebody says, pepperoni pizza gives me nightmares. Or if I eat a certain food, I get nightmares. What happens is if you have a full stomach and you're laying on your back, you're more likely to have some what's called reflux or, or GERD, gastroesophageal reflux or heartburn. So that acid will come up, and if it happens to come up when you're in the midst of a dream, it interrupts your dream, and you become aware of the dream, and now you remember the nightmare or the, or, the, or the unpleasant dream. Many of our dreams are unpleasant. They reflect our emotions and our fears. But if you don't remember the dream, you have nothing to report. But if you go to bed in a full stomach and you have a tendency towards heartburn, the more food that's in your stomach, the more likely you are to have unpleasant dreams.
0: What about if you have a glass of wine before you go to sleep?
1: Well, alcohol... Uh, it was sedating so alcohol will help you fall asleep but alcohol does not last too long in your system it wears off very fast so if you drink alcohol to help you fall asleep um, what happens is you may fall asleep quicker but you tend to wake up more often during the night alcohol is just not a good substance for sleeping i mean your listeners can tell you that you can drink to the point of passing out But you don't wake up feeling great the next day, right? You feel awful. You wish you hadn't done that. So alcohol can get you you – a small amount of alcohol can get you in the right frame of mind, relax you. That's one thing. But if you're thinking, I need alcohol to sleep, there's a problem because it won't work. And in the long run, whatever is driving that insomnia in the first place, the alcohol won't be enough.
0: Dr. Palaya, we have to leave it there, unfortunately. We've run out of time. But my great thanks to you for being on today's Please Explain. Dr. Rafael Polayo is a clinical professor, psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Stanford Center for Sleep Sciences and, Medita- and Medicine. It's been a pleasure having you on our show.
1: Thank you so much.